Well, dear friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. This is the third sermon in our series in the book of Jonah. Uh, And we're spending a lot of time in the first chapter in order to get our bearings in the book, in order to get a proper orientation to the book of Jonah. Uh, So today we are reading Jonah 1, verses 1 to 3, but I'll be preaching on Jonah 1, verse 3. I do promise that the rest of the series won't take this long. Uh, We will finish it before uh, 2021 ends. Um, But the hope is, as we go through the book of Jonah, uh, that you absolutely love the book of Jonah. And in coming to love the book of Jonah, you would come to love the God of Jonah. And so uh, today, again, the focus is verse 3, although we're reading verses 1 to 3 for context. So I know we just uh, sat, but would you stand with me? And why do we stand? It is an act of worship. So we read God's word and receive God's word given to us. Jonah chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer, asking God's blessing. Lord, it is only by illumination uh, from your Holy Spirit, the author of the scriptures, that we could understand what is written here and that it could do uh, far more than fill our minds, that it could pierce our hearts and that it could change our lives. So we come to your word asking for that uh, power as we read your word and we are confronted by your word. I pray that through it you would give to us much assurance, much conviction, much comfort. Do this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you were a child, did you ever run away from home? Was there any one of you who packed your bags and left home for the far country? Um, You know, for a child, maybe making it to the end of the neighborhood is is pretty far. It's the equivalent of crossing state lines. Uh, Some of you, maybe you've packed your bags and you've made it to the front door, maybe to the front yard. Uh, You know, this past week, I was reading uh, this article, and it had uh, all these contributions where parents would submit letters uh, that their kids had written uh, as they were saying their final uh, farewells and goodbyes. And um, it was a really, really extremely uh, cute set of letters explaining why they're leaving. The first letter I found the most adorable, uh, this child wrote, I am running away because you think I farted when I didn't. Uh, which sounds like a pretty legitimate reason to me. I've, I've wanted to run away for similar reasons. Um, but the most common were kind of captured around this, this one theme. Um, so here's a letter that kind of captures it. Uh, this child wrote, Mother and Dad, do not call the FBI or police. I will be back at Wednesday. The reason why I have done this is because you are mean. Because <laughs> you are mean. You know, a lot of children run away from home because mom and dad are mean. Now, when they call mom and dad mean, usually what they mean is mom and dad are asking me to do something that I don't want to do. Chores, you're mean. Bedtime, you're mean. Homer, you're mean. Let's go to church. You're really mean. So rather than obeying, they would rather, and they've decided life is better if I've run away. It's easier if I run away. And I bring that up because today's story is also about a runaway. A man who was told to do something he didn't want to do thought his God was mean, 
And rather than choose to obey, he chose instead to escape as far as possible. Now, the beauty of Jonah uh, is that it's, it's unlike the other prophetic books in that it is a narrative. It's a story. And so the theological concepts that this book teaches is conveyed through a story, through the narrative. And what we see described in Jonah 1 is that Jonah's disobedience, his sin against God, is described as running away from God's presence. Now, that's a very interesting perspective on sin. If you were to ask the Westminster divines in our lovely standards, the shorter catechism, question 14, would respond in this way. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. If you ask Apostle Paul, he would say sin is falling short of the glory of God, falling short of God's holy, perfect standard. If you were to ask Apostle John, he would say sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking the perfect law of God. But the author of Jonah describes sin. He portrays sin very relationally. Sin, he seems to suggest, is running away from God. Because when we sin, and we all sin, when you and I disobey, when we break God's commands, when we fall short, way short of what he requires from us, there's a relational component involved. That you're not merely breaking a set of rules out there, but there's a relational aspect involved in our sinning. We are turning from God and we are going the other way. We're turning from the face of God and showing him our back as we're choosing to live in a way that's contrary to his. And so Jonah is a book about sin. It's a story of a sinner, a runaway. But it's also a book about salvation, about good news. And so if we understand sin as running away from God, then we must understand salvation as God running after us. Let me repeat that. If sin is you running away from God, salvation is God running after you. And that's what I want us to see this morning. Now, as we situate ourselves and remember the context, Jonah is an Israelite prophet. It's the 8th century BC. The Assyrian Empire is the world superpower. And the Assyrians are brutal. They are bullies. And so little guys, little nations like Israel absolutely despised them. They hated them. And it's into this historical scene where the great bully of Syria is bullying the, the tiny nation of Israel that God's word comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, arise and give this message. Verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Now, Jonah hears the call. He refuses to go. Because Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and Jonah doesn't believe Nineveh des uh, deserves God's grace. Nineveh deserves nothing but God's wrath and judgment. So Jonah says, I don't want to even give them the opportunity to turn from their evil and to turn and receive mercy. So Jonah disobeys. He sins. He runs away. But think about why Jonah would do that. Right? Why would disobedience necessarily entail running away? It's a strange response. Imagine it's a Saturday, you have kids, they're on the couch, the living room sofa, they're on their phones or their tablets. And it's a fall day, so there's a lot of, uh, of leaves in the front. And so you tell your child, go into the front yard and rake the leaves. How many of them would say, no, get up and go to the backyard? It would be a strange response. Jonah is told, get up, 
go to Nineveh. And you would think if Jonah wanted to disobey, he would stomp his foot and say, well, nope, I'm staying right here. But that's not what Jonah does. Why does he go the extra mile, pack his bags, go down to Joppa and head off in the other direction? And the answer is because in his running away, in his sinning, Jonah is defying God in every possible way. You see, God says to Jonah, arise. And then we're told Jonah went down to Joppa. God says, go east to Nineveh. And Jonah says, well, I'm going to head west to Tarshish. God says, I want you to travel over the desert on land to Assyria. Jonah says, well, I'm going to buy a ticket and board a ship and go on the water. Jonah's behavior is like that of a five-year-old who is literally doing the exact opposite of what God has said. I can imagine Jonah, not the the historical faithful prophet in um, 2 Kings 14 who obeyed God and listened to him, but but Jonah this time being being like a little child who who God says, do this, and, and Jonah's doing the opposite. And with a little smirk, he's thinking, well, it's opposite day. I'm doing the opposite. So we read this, God's command comes to Jonah, arise and go. And then we read in verse three, but Jonah rose. Now it's interesting here, right? God says, arise. And then we read that Jonah arose. And it's very intentional that the author is using this same Hebrew verb. Because what the author is doing is he's baiting the reader into thinking that Jonah is going to obey. But then in the last second, he flips it. God says, arise, Jonah. Jonah says, okay, he arises. But then we read, but Jonah rose to flee. That Jonah, who is partially obedient here, doesn't do what God calls him to do in full, but merely in part. And so that's the first observation I want to make with you. Partial obedience to God is still full disobedience against God. Partial obedience to God is still full disobedience against God. There's no partial credit when it comes to doing what God commands. There are no fractions. There are no decimals. There's obedience and there is disobedience. The great theologian once put it this way, do or do not, there is no try. And yet so many times we want, to be God, we want God to be pleased with our try. We want God to count our attempt to do something, our intent to do something, despite how much we've actually failed or ignored what God has told us to do. Do you remember taking tests on scantrons growing up? Scantrons are, of course, those forms with all the bubbles, A to E. Uh, Scantrons were just really one big mind game uh, because you're filling it out, but at one point, it no longer becomes about the test, right? Because you feel, you answer the question, you go, I think it's A, but you look at the scantron, you have like nine A's in a row, and you're like, I guess it's not A. You're not even looking at the question. You're like, I haven't put C in a while, so the answer's got to be C. I don't know what it's saying on the paper, but the answer is C. You know, scantrons, they always began with three lists of instructions. One, use a number two pencil. Two, when you uh, change your answer, don't cross it out, erase it. And third, fill in the bubble completely. Why? Because the way the scantrons worked, if you only partially filled the bubble, if you only shaded half of it, the machine wouldn't catch the right answer. And so you could actually take the entire test. You could answer all of it, you know, all the answers. But if you only partially filled in the bubble, you wouldn't get partial credit. You'd get everything fully wrong. Partial filling in is still fully wrong. 
And that wouldn't be unfair because you either fill in the bubble or you don't fill it in all the way. In the same way, there's no partial obedience with God. There's no partial credit with God. And therefore, it's not unfair when he counts that against us because when God commands something of you, there isn't, well, I did some of it. I did half of it. I obeyed as much as I could. I tried. I responded as best as I could. You either fully obeyed or you fully disobeyed. Partial obedience to God is the same as full disobedience against God. And so here you have the word of the Lord come to Jonah, arise, go. And Jonah says, well, okay, I will arise. So he arises, but he flees. And so we read in verse three, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Now, I'm not sure about you, but as a kid hearing this story, I filled in all the details that the author left out for us. And we tend to do that. You read a narrative, you read a story, and you kind of fill in the scene. And for me, the scene is uh, Jonah headed down to Tarshish, right? So Jonah receives the word of the Lord, go, arise, go. Jonah goes, okay, well, I don't want to go. So he runs away. He heads down in urgency to Joppa. As soon as he gets to the dock, he hears, last call for Tarshish. And with a new sense of urgency, I imagine him running down, right? He knows Tarshish is the other way. So he runs down and the boat is just departing the dock. There's a little bit of water. He jumps with all his might. He catches onto the side of the boat with his fingertips. The sailors pull him up and then he sails off into the distance. Now, none of that's in here, but that's just the way I, that's the, you know, ASV, Andrew standard version. Um, But we tend to fill in the details and the assumption is that Jonah goes down and it says he finds a boat. And so we think, oh, he just kind of, you know, he's looking at, you know, the train schedule. and Oh, Tarshish, that's the other way. And he gets on a boat. But that's not actually what's happening. I believe that Jonah knew that he was going to Tarshish as soon as God's word came to him. As soon as he decided in his heart to disobey God, he knew he was going to Tarshish. Not because of what was available, but because of what he intended to do in his disobedience. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, there are two reasons I would say that. The author is showing that Tarshish is a strategic, intentional destination. The first is the sheer amount of repetition. In this one verse in verse three, Tarshish is mentioned three times. It's a pain to say, especially if you have a list, you know, Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. But Tarshish, three times, one verse, why? Because it's very important. The author is cluing you in saying, this is not an accidental place. This is an intentional place. There's a reason why Jonah's going here. The second way that he hints at it is something that we call it through a chiastic structure. A chiastic structure is when you take um, the, the layout of a sentence and you sort of organize it in parallel statements, which lead to a final uh, main point. And so here we see a chiastic structure in verse three, right? This is the actual verse without any modifications. A, the first statement, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And it's paralleled at the end of the verse to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. In the middle, we have, he went to Joppa, which is followed at the end with, and went down into it with the same parallel verb. He went down, he found a ship, he paid the fare for the ship. And right there in the middle is where Jonah is headed. He is headed to Tarshish. Now, why is so much attention given to this place? Where's Tarshish anyway? And most commentators have agreed, scholars have concluded that Tarshish was in Spain. It was literally the opposite direction of Nineveh. But more significantly than just the fact that it was the other way from Nineveh is this fact. Isaiah 66 verse 19, God says this, And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, 
that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. Tarshish was literally at the edge of the world that Israel knew. But not only that, God's fame, God's glory, God's word had not reached Tarshish. No prophet had had the word of God revealed to him in that land. And so when Jonah chooses to run away from God, when he chooses to disobey God, he chooses to go to the place where he thinks to himself, God can't call me here. God can't reach me here. God can't commission me from here. Jonah is essentially thinking, God's glory, okay, where has God's glory, his fame, his word never reached before? Tarshish. So if I go there, then I can be free from God's word. I can be free from God. I can live however I want to without being worried that God will call me to do anything. Essentially, I can live as my own God. I can be free to live how I want to, which is why the author then twice he repeats this phrase in verse three, that Jonah was fleeing to Tarshish. Why was Tarshish so important? Because it was away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah's a theologian. He's a prophet. He knows God. He knows the doctrine of God's omnipresence. The fact that God is everywhere, that there is nowhere God isn't. He knows Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8, which says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Shoal, you are there. Jonah surely knew this truth about God. And so when Jonah's running away and he gets on the boat and he tries to head to Tarshish, he is not trying to escape God uh, geographically. Or spatially, he knows God is there. He's trying to run away from God relationally because there's a relational component in our sin. You see, that little phrase, the presence of the Lord, is literally a translation um, or is a translation of, of a phrase more literally in, in Hebrew, the face of the Lord. The, the Jonah's not just running from the presence of God. He's running from the face of God. In his sin, he's trying to escape God. And so if, if there is any other way, the better way of, of capturing at the heart of our disobedience, you know, is, is there anything better than this? Yes. What is sin? Oh, yes. Sin is breaking God's commandment. Certainly. What is sin? Sin is failing to uphold God's perfect standard. Yes, certainly. But sin is running away from the Lord, running from his face, running so we don't have to answer to him. It's our attempt to put as much distance between us and God to make it as impossible as we try to for God to declare or to uh, determine or to call us to obey him. At the heart of sin is our running away from the Lord. And this is why whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not a Christian, whether you believe in a God or you don't believe in a God, all of us in some way or another are running away from him. That's the very essence of sin, trying to get away from escaping him so that we can live as our own gods. We we ignore his commands because we don't want to disobey ourselves. We insist on doing our will because we think ours is better, on his will because we think ours is better. We don't want God to have a say in our lives. We want the final determination. We We want to determine where we go and when we go, not God. We want to decide what we say and how we say it, not the Lord. We want to dictate for ourselves, this is true, this is false, this is good, this is evil. We want to be the arbiters of truth. We run away from God because he is the biggest threat to us, to the rival God. But running from God, running from the one who created you, running away from the one in whose image you are made is ultimately spiritually detrimental. It only hurts us because we were made in God's image. We were made for God. And so to run away 
leads to spiritual deterioration, a spiritual descent, a spiritual spiraling down. The author captures that. The more and more Jonah is disobedient, the more and more he's running away, the author is showing that Jonah is going down and down and down. Chapter 1, verse 3, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Verse 3, he paid the fare and went down into the boat. Verse 5, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, the belly of the ship, and had lain down. And then at his lowest point, as he's sitting there in his disobedience, in the belly of the great fish, Jonah prays, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. The more and more Jonah runs away from God, the further he descends into his own sin and misery, the more alienated, the more lost he feels. It's an experience we all have when we try to distance ourselves from God, when we try to live without him. Because the reality is that the safest, most life-giving place is in his presence. We were made to be near God, not far from him. We were made to live in God's will, not opposed to it. We were made to say, yes, Lord, not no, Lord. But when you run from God long enough, when you flee his face hard enough, you know, you think you're convinced that you'll arrive at a place of freedom and joy. If I disobey, if I live however I want, if I ignore God's law, if I do what I want, I will get to a place of joy and contentment and happiness. But you only end up in a greater rut, greater emptiness, greater dissatisfaction, greater discontentment. Because you see, when you run away from God, you end up running after something else, a God substitute. You end up living for something else. What are you living for? What are you chasing after? Because if you're running away from God, you are running after something else. You're running after wealth and status, legacy, significance, reputation, power, control, romance, sex, pleasure, comfort. What are you running after? And the problem is when you run after these other things, things that are God substitutes, You'll never have enough of whatever it is you're seeking. You know, we run away from God's presence. What do we run after? We run after the world's presence, the things the world has to offer us. And you're running and you're running, but will you ever get there? And when you get it, will it ever be enough? Or is there always something on the horizon? I can't wait to, I was going to say escape my parents' house, but I can't wait to go to college and leave my parents' house. When will you leave? I can't wait to get a job. When will you get a job? I can't wait to make more money. And then you make some more money. I can't wait to get married. You make, you know, you get married. I can't wait to, you can't wait to, I can't wait to, I keep going. You know, I just, I, I thought of this um, in light of the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago. Remember in 2005, Tom Brady did a 60 Minutes interview, very enlightening, illuminating interview. Uh, and at that point, he had won um, three Super Bowl rings. And when he was asked about it, you know, he shared basically thinking, there must be more to life. You guys may be familiar with this. There must be more to life. You know, life must be about something greater. He said, man, I've done it all. I'm 27. You know, I've, I've achieved the top. What else is there for me? And, uh, you know, 16 years ago, Tom Brady had run hard after those championships. He achieved it. He was sitting at the top. 
And then the interview asked this question. He said, uh, which of your rings are your favorite? Which win, which Super Bowl championship is, is your favorite? And Brady's response was really haunting, frightening. Because he said, my favorite ring? I've always said the next one. The next one's the best. Why? Because he could never be satisfied with what he had. He needed more of it. You see, without a better hope, without a, a better answer, whether it's Tom Brady or it's us, we will just always look to the horizon. What's next? I can't wait till the weekend. Well, once that weekend comes, what are you waiting for? Well, the next weekend. And so to run after more and more of the same temporarily satisfying thing will leave us empty each time. Now, here's the real reason why I'm sharing that illustration. Two weeks ago, Tom Brady won again. And that interview was 16 years ago. 16 years have passed. Now he sits way ahead of the pack. Seven championship rings. And the question now for him is, well, Mr. Tom Brady, is that enough for you now? How many more next rings do you need to win to give you the happiness that you're seeking? Because you said the next best one. So when you had three and you won four, was that enough? Was five enough? Was six enough? Now you've won seven. Is that enough? Now you're so far. Is that enough? And truth be told, it seems like Tom Brady still hasn't found what he's looking for. So let me ask you, have you found what you're looking for? Running away from God, running after something else, have you found what you're looking for? And the reality is when we chase after God's substitutes, when we run far from the presence of the Lord, looking for those things that satisfy we will find ourselves emptier, more in the pit. This is the heart of disobedience, running away. And yet here's the thing. What, here's why the Christian gospel is so beautiful. When God comes running after you, when God comes and he confronts you, when he exposes this, we call this idolatry, God's substitutes, call it whatever you want. When God exposes this, uh, we feel like God would say to us, you know what, just stop it. Stop running after God's substitutes. Run after me. But that would be religion. That would make salvation our own doing, a result of our own effort. God said, stop doing this and start doing this. But Jonah, from the belly of the fish, you know what he discovers? This lesson, Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. This was Jonah's discovery. This was life-changing for him. This is why in the next chapter, he actually goes and he obeys and does what God calls him to do because he realizes that this whole time that I was running away from God, right on my heel was the great hound of heaven. Right as I was running away from God, God was always running after me. And that's what you need to know this, this morning. The truth of the Christian gospel. God doesn't say to you, stop running after God's substitute, start running after me. Stop doing this, start doing this, stop doing this, start doing this. That is salvation by works. But salvation belongs to the Lord because what God is saying is, I know you're running away from me. I know you're running after other things. I know you're fleeing my presence, but look at these God substitutes you're chasing after. When the tables are turned and you start running away from them, will they ever chase after you? Would they ever come for you? Would they ever pursue you? But the Lord says, but not me. I'm the God who runs after you. And I will never stop. I will chase you down. I will pursue you. Yes, it, you defy me. You disobey me. I say arise, you go down. I say go west, east, you go west. 
the Lord is saying, there's nothing that will stop me from running after you with mercy upon mercy. Salvation is found in the God who runs after us. And when we were spiraling down, a spiritual descent, we're going down and down as we're running away from the Lord. God decides to enter into that spiritual descent for us. He enters the spiral for us. He sends his son, the great hound of heaven, to come after us. So he comes, he goes down from heaven to earth, from throne to cradle, from glory to the cross. And there in the cross, Jesus takes our sin, our disobedience. He takes our running away from the presence of the Lord. It's cast on him. And he who desired nothing but to be in the presence of the Lord, who deserved nothing than that because of his perfect life and obedience, Jesus was cast in the presence of the Lord. So there in the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't flee God's presence as Jonah tried to do, but he was cast from God's presence as Jonah deserved, as you and I deserve because of our sin. And he did this in his sacrificial death so that he could offer you mercy and mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace. This is the savior we have. You know, friends, if there's any one of you in this room or who's watching, who's currently running away from God, you want nothing to do with him. Uh, you're, you're either so completely disinterested in the things of God, you give given no mind, no thought, or you are living in active rebellion against him. What are the things you're chasing after in his place? What are you pursuing after? And then stop to ask yourself this. Well, if I stopped and I went the other way, would those things chase after me? the gods and the God substitutes that I'm chasing? Would they sacrifice anything for me? Because these gods require you to sacrifice everything for them. Would they do anything for you? And I want to tell you of a savior who, who would. Jesus who does. Jesus who did. And to turn and trust in him for salvation is his and he offers it to you. For those of you who know Jesus, you trust in Jesus with all your heart. You have been found by the great hound of heaven. May, may I encourage you to two activities of running in your life. First, there's something you should run away from. Run away from sin. Run away from the things that trap you and try to bring you back into the pit with it. Run away from temptation. Run away from those God substitutes and all they seek to do is blur you and distract you from the goodness and the mercy of God. Run away from sin and run after the Lord. Run after the one who makes himself available to you in fellowship and communion. Run after the one who gave up everything in order to have you and now offers himself to you and enjoy his daily presence. You see, friends, in our sin, we run away from God with great diligence. But in the gospel, God runs after us with greater determination. The hound of heaven is after you. Let's pray.